the Water Values Podcast, Session 51. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. It's been a great day. I just recorded today the interview that will air on St. Patrick's Day. I had a terrific conversation that delves into a very complex issue and I think you're really going to enjoy it when it comes out. Well, on today's show, uh, it's a great one. Charlene Lorig joins us to discuss climate change and its impact on water and specifically water utilities and municipalities dealing with those impacts. Charlene is the Water Program Director for Ceres, and she discusses climate change broadly and then scopes down to discuss a variety of issues within the water sector affected by climate change. You know, things like credit rating agencies and how they're assessing climate risk and lots more. She has a ton of great examples, too. Charlene gives us a terrific interview and has some great points. And as I listen to the interview again, one of my favorites is her statement that, quote, I think we're starting to see an awakening across the United States, realizing that the city itself can be a watershed, end quote. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Charlene, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, to start off, Charlene, why don't you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. I'm happy to join. Uh, my background it was in physics a, a long time ago. Um, I spent some time at Massachusetts Institute of Technology focusing on the integration of science um, through direct engagement with all the stakeholders involved in the outcome um, in, in the development of science to back natural resource decision making, which is often very fraught with uh, values and conflict, and um, came from there to Ceres, which is a, a national nonprofit that for the last 25 years has been working with institutional investors and companies to build long-term sustainability into the financial markets. All right. And what are you doing with Ceres now? Well, Ceres uh, has two signature issues that we work on with members of the financial markets. Uh, one is climate change. And the other is water scarcity and, and water stress. And we're finding that across economic sectors and across asset classes now, uh, climate change and water stress are starting to make their way into the bottom line of uh, companies all over the world and companies maybe from sectors that are surprising. You know, the, the apparel industry uh, is, is by no means sheltered anymore from extreme weather or from water insecurity. They feel it in the prices that they pay for, for cotton. Um, they feel it, it as they look at facility siting decisions in Southeast Asia and areas where there's extreme uh, water, uh, water stress in the form of, of water quality. And um, so they're trying to look at the decisions they have to make on a long-term basis that are all about the the long-term economic performance of their companies or their investment funds and how to build water and climate change into those decisions. Okay. And uh, in terms of building, you know, climate change into the decisions that these businesses are making, I, I feel like I need a little background on, on how climate is really affecting uh, water. So, could could you provide that background? You know what what is it 
going on with the, with climate change that is impacting water? Yeah, well, it's now um, kind of a, a well-worn truth that climate change will first be felt in in water, and we're seeing that across the world and, and also within the United States. So uh, higher global temperatures mean a more volatile hydrologic cycle. It means that uh, it will have longer durations of time where there is no rainfall in areas that may already be sub subject to drought and water scarcity. And then when the rainfall does come, it will come in very high intensity bursts um, in super destructive floods make, that are very hard to capture actually usable water for. So uh, we also are seeing that the impact of, of warming temperatures on the traditional storage of water systems in the Mountain West in California, where reservoirs were built with the assumption that most of the water storage that, that those places needed was going to be provided as it always had been by snowpack. And so the reservoirs that were built only had to capture water during the summer months. Um, and that no longer is, is the case. And we're beginning to see places that have absolutely zero storage looking at a future in which in 30, 40, 50 years, they might have to have replaced all of that or a substantial amount of that mountain snowpack with actually physical storage. Well, I mean, that's, that's certainly uh, a daunting task, I'd think. Um, Talk a little, if you would, please, about how cl uh, climate is impacting businesses in terms of um, just some of the the water risks, uh, such as, you know, insurance and things of that nature. Sure. Um, I think what maybe has taken a lot of people by surprise, and, and we're seeing this play out this week in, in New York and Boston, is actually the types of extreme weather that businesses are experiencing um, are in all seasons and uh, creating some unexpected loss profiles that really hadn't been anticipated. I think people had been thinking about, um, you know, higher hurricane intensity. Well, we've yet to really see that play out in the statistics, but we are seeing that the five out of 10 most severe winter storms that have happened in New York City's history um, have happened within the last 10 years. Um, you know, we're seeing um, companies like Toyota experiencing um, severe impacts to their shipping for their uh, their manufactured um, products um, in places like Southeast Asia, where um, extreme flooding from those types of high precipitation events um, have have created flooding on such a massive scale that they just have no ability to uh, perform logistics that are part of um, their day-to-day -day operations. And that's really throwing a wrench in the works for a lot of companies. We, we have a, a company that is among our membership group, um, uh, Jones Lang LaSalle, which as part of its services offered um, provides facility siting consultation to global corporations that are looking around the world and trying to understand where they should be building that next semiconductor uh, fab facility um, or whatever it might be. And for them, water is now a top three issue when companies are looking globally at where to site facilities. So, um, you know, it, this is not a, a long distant future that we're talking about. It's, it's happening today. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Toyota and shipping. How How is climate impacting the shipping aspect of Toyota's business? Well, for, 
so for the for the those extreme floods that happened in Thailand, um, that was uh, a monsoon period that was uh, far in excess of I think what historic norms had been. Now, now partly what confounds interpretation of flooding events is that you are having both climatological changes, hydrological changes, but also land use changes, right? So you might have an area that formerly might have been able to absorb that level of precipitation because it was vegetated, and now it's become an industrial park and it was not designed for that level of precipitation. And so um, our infrastructure, for the most part today, globally tends to still be designed assuming a static climate. So we're building uh, roads, we're building railways, airports, uh, water lines, uh, uh, electric uh, facilities, whatever it might be, on the assumption that, um, that flooding statistics will remain what they have been historically, and yet, um, what we are, are now observing is that the statistics are changing dramatically ar around the globe. And, and we saw this play out in a really interesting way in Chicago last year when Farmers Insurance um, actually filed a lawsuit against a number of its clients, um, among them the sewer authority of, of metropolitan Chicago, saying, you know, you've been putting climate adaptation plans out there into the world, but you haven't been updating your infrastructure accordingly. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a, a big flooding event that happened in Chicago, and they, there was raw sewage. Uh, there was so much stormwater coming into the combined sewage system that it was forcing raw sewage up into city streets, into people's basements. It was causing immense amounts of damage, and farmers said, you know what, we're not responsible for that. You, you are responsible for those damages because you failed to adapt your infrastructure. Now, the lawsuit was dropped, ultimately. It was probably not meant to be something to be tested in the courts, but rather a, a warning um, to all types of, of insureds um, that they should expect that they, their, their decisions around capital investment need to start mirroring what they know is changing in our climate. Okay, so uh, I've heard some supply chain uh, impacts of of the of climate change, and specifically as they relate to flooding. Um, and then there's also the actual utilities who are coming under stress because of you know the flooding as well. So there's two different two different pieces there in terms of uh, the utilities and this this lawsuit. How have utilities responded? Absolutely, seeing utilities respond, and we are probably in the leading edge of a huge amount of investment nationally in water infrastructure, not just for drinking, but for stormwater management, flood control, and, and waste management. Um, you know, we have uh, it's, it's well recognized by the American uh, Society of Civil Engineers that a lot of the water treatment. Uh, infrastructure and water management infrastructure in the United States is close to failing, that there's this huge investment gap and the need to just bring it up to, 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 to function in today's environment. The EPA has put their own assessment of the amount of money that will be needed to invest in um, upgrading our infrastructure to a point where it can actually cope with the, with the changes that are being imposed upon it by climate change. And the figures are, are massive. It's anywhere from hundreds of billions to trillions of dollars, depending on whose assessments you're looking at. Um, what's really interesting about uh, water systems and how that uh, 
that infrastructure spending is, is starting to roll out is you're seeing really big investments in traditional infrastructure like DC Water last year went to the market with uh, a, what's called a century bond. It was a hundred year, the longest maturity was a hundred year maturity to help the city um, build a, a sewage and stormwater system that would not result in regular uh, overflows of raw sewage into its waterways. And the way that they were doing that was primarily depended on this deep tunnel infrastructure to, to take the stormwater, capture it so that it's not flowing into the sewage mains, and hold it under the city for as long as it takes um, for the, the sewage treatment facility to be able to process what's coming into it. Um, so that's very traditional. It's very expensive, but in the case of D.C., that's what they decided they needed to do. In, in other cities, and to some extent in D.C. as well, what you're seeing is that very traditional type of infrastructure on steroids is being paired with a really novel way of dealing with, with stormwater flows, which is uh, called green infrastructure. And so Philadelphia is probably the poster child for this. They were, I think, the first to um, achieve an agreement with the EPA for a, a consent decree that had been um, uh, issued to com start complying with the Clean Water Act. Like a lot of cities, they haven't been able to com comply with the Clean Water Act since its inception, um, not for point source pollutants, so, you know, uh, sewage treatment facilities and other sorts of point source pollution are in most places in compliance. The problem is non-point source pollutants. Um, it's all the runoff from waterways that's dumping pollution into, into our waters that create the type of algal blooms that you saw in Toledo, Ohio last year. And instead of trying to address that strictly through uh, deep tunnel infrastructure, gray infrastructure, cities like Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and other places are looking at actually uh, addressing the the taxing of the overtaxing of the stormwater system through a citywide intervention. So removing impervious surface that covers these cities in the form of, of parking lots, um, trying to create financial incentives for uh, building owners to actually put stormwater retention facilities on site. And that's something that we're seeing across the U.S. Uh, with a fair amount of spending that's uh, projected to be associated with that. So in, in the case of Philadelphia, they were looking at a gray infrastructure uh, project uh, that would have been $6 billion to comply with the Clean Water Act. They ended up through that agreement with the EPA coming down to about a $2 billion package that's a mix of gray and green infrastructure, but it's still about a billion dollars of green infrastructure investment. Los Angeles, it's a very similar sort of phenomenon. They're trying to wean themselves off water imports from the state water project, and which is about 90% of their water at this point between that and the Colorado River. And they want to cut that in half over the next 10 years. And half of, of that replaced water, they want to actually source from stormwater recharge and stormwater capture. Now, that requires an intervention across the entire city, much of which is on private property. And that's really this kind of next... Uh, forefront of the challenge that we see for utilities is, okay, you have a plan to execute, but it looks fundamentally different from traditional infrastructure. And a lot of the financial tools that we've developed over time to build the traditional stuff may or may not work for this new type of infrastructure. So how are you still going to invest a billion dollars in it? Right, right. And so you've talked about the impervious surface uh, and removing impervious services to to help with stormwater runoff. We talked about on-site stormwater retention programs. Uh, what about, you know, there are like for for example, green roofs 
uh, which I guess is removing impervious services. But are there other, are there other, you know, infrastructure projects, green infrastructure projects that that help with stormwater and and with the climate change aspects of? Yeah. Well, one that kind of bridges. It's it's a little bit green infrastructure, a little bit kind of just disruptive technology in the form of of decentralized infrastructure is what uh, recently San Francisco Water has adopted as part of its on-site water program. Um, so this is part of their alternative water supply strategy. You know, San Francisco, we often think of as being a really um, wet place, but actually they've been in the midst of drought like the rest of California. And most of their water is actually still sourced from the Hetch Hetchy Dam up near Yosemite, a place that had experienced a really horrific wildfire um, that almost um, shut down the reservoir uh, because of the amount of ash uh, from the from the wildfire that would have been washed into it. So huge climate vulnerability. Um, the city's looking at all sorts of different alternative supply sources, and and one of them is actually water created by buildings in the city. So uh, that could be any type of water. It could be uh, rainwater that is captured from the roof of a city, like from a, a rain garden. Um, it could be stormwater capture. Um, like what we were talking about before, it could be water that's captured from sinks or toilets and treated on site for reuse. And the city um, has implemented uh, some of these technologies in the new um, headquarters for San Francisco Public Utility Commission, which is downtown, really amazing building that provides some of its own on site energy, as well um, as uh, I think about 70% of its water is provided by the building itself through a, a recycling system. And then what's really kind of amazing and bizarre, uh, they've actually built out a series of landscaping along the edge of the building that actually goes into the cafeteria for the building itself. And that's part of the wastewater treatment system. It, it's been designed to mimic tidal wetlands. So it's, I mean, it's really interacting with some of these new disruptive technologies is really kind of mind boggling. One, because you realize the amount of uh, the water footprint that they can actually uh, provide as a resource so you know about 70 percent less water is is how much that water that building is using compared to a traditional building and it's doing it in a way that actually invites the people who are using the building to interact directly with it which you would never see in the case of a traditional wastewater system sure now are you familiar with eco districts Marginally. Mar okay. Because th th from what, what you're describing, I know uh, it sounds a lot like the, the, this stormwater infrastructure, green infrastructure, it, it seems like they are components of an eco-district, at least the water side components rather than the energy side components of the eco-district. So I think yeah. it's... I mean, uh, in a way, it's, it's, you know, it, it's tapping into the metabolism of an urban environment and it's there's you know i think there's become somewhat of a meme recently there was an article in um the los angeles times or, i'm sorry the new york times recently called los angeles city of water that was about this stormwater plan for the city of la that recently npr ran a piece about the city as a sponge you know i, I think we're starting to see an awakening across the united states uh, realizing that the city itself can be a watershed and that there are flows within the city, either natural or human manufactured flows that can be tapped into not only for water sources, but also for energy. We have, 
you know, buildings that are on already up and running in Vancouver, in New York, in Seattle that are actually shaving off thermal energy from the wastewater stream in the building that's being treated on site. That thermal energy is being used to heat and cool. You have wastewater treatment plants that are actually producing energy and selling it onto the grid. Um, in the case of the one in Vancouver, providing 70% of the electricity for the neighborhood that it serves. I mean, it's really revolutionary. And it's um, it's slowly um, hacking away at the lines that we have always um, perceived as separating water infrastructure from energy infrastructure, from waste infrastructure. And, and I would argue that in 10 years, we will be hard pressed to be able to define the difference between those those three things. I think that's a really good way of of thinking about it. Um, b- before we move on to to something else, I wanted to to you mentioned earlier. You said we're on the edge of this massive investment in water, and you you cited uh, DC Water's Century Bond, and and you know I don't know George Hawkins had a uh, fantastic blog piece about kind of how that Century Bond came together. Um, and one of the he really credited the the essentially the CFO of of DC Water for for thinking kind of outside the box and and uh, coming up with with that model. In terms of how these municipalities and these governments are going to get the money to finance that massive investment, what are the issues that they need to they they'll need to be aware of or or are they going to face uh, when going to the market to get to get that financing? Right. Well, you know, now and for the past 10 years or so has been the ideal time to go to the market to finance capital improvement programs because interest rates have been so low. The problem being that a lot of local governments have been feeling the economic impact of the recession. And so, it, you know, it hasn't felt like a great time to go to market with that $2 billion uh, CIP for, you know, uh, the new drinking water system or, you know, new sewage treatment plan or whatever it might be. Um, and we've seen a lot of, of talk out there around it, whether or not there is a an renewed need for um, the, the traditional vehicles that we've used to finance our infrastructure, which have mainly been debt in the form of municipal bonds, um, and, and even more so now that federal money has, has really tailed off and we're just not seeing anything like what we'd seen in, in the good old, day, old, good old days of the, the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act with that infusion of federal dollars. And so there's been a lot of talk about bringing more private financing into the sector, and I think we're certainly starting to see that. There's um, a couple of very large-scale projects for drinking water, uh, one in San Diego, one in in San Antonio, that are bringing uh, private equity to the table. Um, The one in California is for a desal plant. uh, The one in San Antonio is for a groundwater project. Um, You know, but those are still... Um, somewhat marginal. You have a couple of, of instances of private equity funds actually um, undertaking long-term concessions with water utilities that were in such a state of financial disrepair that they really didn't have the option of going to market. Um, and that's obviously not what you hope to see driving utilities to new types of, of financing structures. You don't want to see them in, in a deep uh, state of credit distress. Um, but, you know, the sector is extremely... Um, decentralized 
we have, as the EPA estimates, there's more than 50,000 water systems out there in the United States. Many of those are extremely small systems, um, but even if you screened out all, you know, the, the very smallest, it still means that you have a lot of water systems for whom it is very difficult to raise funding directly in the market. Um, and there probably will be, over the next 20, 30 years, some amount of consolidation that happens within the market just because the the economies of scale aren't there for a lot of these systems. They they depended on grants that are less available today. You know, there's been a lot of talk, and actually there was a report uh, handed to the EPA last year by what's called the Environmental Finance Advisory Board. It's people within the financial markets who have done work um, servicing and, and selling and packaging municipal securities for water infrastructure um, that said, you know, the state revolving funds, which are, are, are capitalized by uh, congressional allocations to the EPA and then administered through the states. Uh, that has that that program has received somewhere on the order of forty to fifty billion dollars since its inception over the last twenty or thirty years. Um, in a lot of places, that money is still being. Uh, lent out at a 0% interest rate or just simply given away as grants. Um, when you're talking about a $300 billion to trillion dollar investment uh, gap, that is not a, an effective use of, of the very limited federal funds that are out there. And, and there probably is going to need to be some amount of layering of private money, federal money, municipal money, because when you look at it, the returns of private investment are, are so high that it's difficult to imagine that all of the infrastructure investments we need to achieve are going to be happening through that. The cost of capital is really just um, so substantially higher than anything that systems have ever paid before that we really do need to look at making better use of, of those SRF programs. And we've been doing work recently as well, just trying to ask the question of, are we using the municipal debt market, which functions very well, it has, you know, in any given day, billions of dollars of, of trading for securities that are already on the market, um, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that are that are sold into the market each year with fair, very high credit quality. Should that be debt that's working better for the types of distributed solutions that we're see seeing starting to bubble up from these water plans across the country? And right now, the debt market has not been used in most places, with the exception of Las Vegas and a couple of other places. Vegas used about $30 million of bonds to fund their cash for grass program to reduce water use. Um, you know, when you look at something like Philadelphia's billion dollar green infrastructure plan, you know, just saying we don't think we can use bonds for that purpose because it's on private property isn't really. Um, sufficient. And so we've been doing a lot of work to look at the actual legal basis of, of using those instruments for these purposes and, and some of the legal modifications that would be needed, um, while also providing assurance to investors to make sure that these are liquid credits. Sure. Now, uh, bringing, up, bringing up bonds, I know in, in my representation of, of at least municipal systems, uh, going to the credit, agencies, credit rating agencies was always a big deal. Um, how are the credit rated credit rating agencies i'm having trouble saying that today uh yeah. how are they how are they looking at these issues that uh the climate change has brought upon the water sector yeah well you know this year both moody's and standard and poor's have issued a request for comment on updating their credit rating methodology for water and sewer enterprises as well as stormwater enterprises um, and in both cases we're seeing moody's and s p talk about climate change 
Um, they, they might not say climate change together. S&P says climate risk. Moody's talks about extreme weather. Um, but, you know, extreme weather and hydrological changes, ultimately what that really boils down to is climate change. Um, so it is being built into their assessment. And part of the challenge is, um, you know, it's it's not enough to, to simply look at a system's vulnerability or its exposure in terms of where it's situated, right? Los Angeles is always going to be in Los Angeles. Miami is always going to be in Miami. To a certain extent, they, the types of extremes that they're going to experience are just baked into the system. There's nothing they can do about that. What they can do is build climate into their long-term supply and infrastructure planning and adapt. And, and what we're urging utilities to do is to talk openly about how they're doing that and how they're assessing what the future looks like. We understand it's highly uncertain. It, it creates complexities in planning. There are some types of decisions that can be made with a, a high certainty today, and others where there's very low confidence in, in what the actual outcome will be when you're looking at different climate variables. Um, but we are encouraged by both of those rating agencies starting to build that um, into the set of, of factors that they're assessing because um, ultimately, it, there is no way to invest in water security in the 21st century if climate change is not one of the fundamental factors for which you're planning. Sure, sure. And so how are how are utilities receiving the advocacy uh, that Ceres is, is out there promoting? I think it's, it's a little bit mixed. You know, there are some places where the water sector is still just as um, stodgy and uh, resistant to to change and evolution as people often describe it as being. There are other places where there's actually a tremendous amount of evolution and innovation happening and um, water utilities who are looking to be recognized for that. Um, and so we've done work with utilities that actually are trying to figure out ways of talking to the market to elevate these issues because they don't feel that the market truly understands how they're performing and how they're positioned to perform vis-a-vis -vis their peers. Um, you know, the market tends to look at historical financial ratios. They look at, at projections of, of future revenues for water utilities, just assuming things that now we know are really untrue, which is that, you know, we assume that water sales track population growth. Well, we know that's absolutely <laughs> not the case. And in fact, I was it was great to see within S&P's um, uh, public request for comments that they actually have a footnote in there that says we no longer assume that that water consumption tracks population. Um, you know, there's an assumption still that water utilities uh, are monopolies. And I think the types of disruptive technologies that you're seeing deployed in places like San Francisco are totally undermining that that assumption, which is actually fascinating and extremely promising when you think about how we fund and implement the, the next generation of infrastructure in a way that can be more resilient and have hopefully less uh, financial burden and, and less uh, environmental uh, degradation associated with it. Um, but it also can sneak up on utilities and take them by surprise if they're not, if they still think they're a monopoly. And it's, it's actually really interesting to look at what has happened in the last 10 years with electric utilities, the whole sector was downgraded last year by Barclays, the investment bank, saying, you know, you failed to take into account what role uh, distributed solar would play in pricing dislocation and demand dislocation in your sector. And now we're seeing it actually take take hold and, and affect 
the bottom line. And it's kind of, we're on the very beginning of that for water utilities. So for a lot of people, it's still absolutely incomprehensible that you could talk about a water utility as not a monopolistic enterprise. And yet you look at some of, of what's happening in Sydney, Australia and San Francisco, and you realize, you know, my God, that's actually it, it, no longer true. They, their customers are becoming their competitors and, and that can be part of the solution if it's invited. Yeah. It, boy, there is a lot of change coming and you've given us some great perspective on that today, Charlene. I mean, I I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch how all this plays out and how utilities uh, and businesses react to climate change uh, as as regards their water. Well, Charlene, where can where can folks go to find out more about you and Ceres? So Ceres website is www.ceres.org. Terrific. Um, and do you have a Twitter handle? I do. It's at S-L-E-U-R-I-G. Terrific. Well, Charlene, thanks again for your time today. You've been absolutely great. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, You betcha. All right, bye. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Charlene Lorig. I hope you enjoyed it because I thought she was terrific and relayed a lot of great information. A couple takeaways for you. First, as I said in the open, I really like her thought of the city as its own watershed. And I think of of this as a, a lot... It has to do with the eco-district movement, as I mentioned during the interview, uh, at least the water side of the eco-district movement. And I think that's what it's all about. It's using and reusing resources locally, everything from water to waste to energy. They're all interrelated. And the more we can harness those resources, the better off we are and the more sustainable we'll be. The fact that cities are doing this tells me that the economics have penciled out, and that itself is a big takeaway. Next, I found the discussion of how credit rating agencies factoring climate risk into their analysis uh, is a big issue. Uh, Utilities seeking funding now ought to have a climate plan, if they're getting rated, of course. And this is a big deal because it will force utilities to think about the risk of climate change, and that will force internalization of at least some of the economic externalities that exist out there. In other words, bringing those costs that we are not taking into account currently in our rate structure and bringing those, internalizing those costs so that we aren't pushing them out into the future so that we're, we're really getting full cost service. My final takeaway is the growing prevalence of green infrastructure in cities. And this is a big step, and I think green infrastructure not only will help with water issues, it will help with air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, it will help make cities more enjoyable places by providing those, those kind of interactions with nature. And it will, at least I think it should, uh, lower city temperatures, and that will help you know the whole global warming issue because uh, green infrastructure should take that energy and rather than just capturing it as heat, it's it's using that en- energy uh, in terms of you know the green infrastructure growing and plants growing and things of that nature, rather than just storing it up and, and say the battery that is all the pavement um, and other traditional gray infrastructure in a city that that you know, typically has cities being significantly warmer than their surrounds. So there are a lot of benefits to green infrastructure, and I'm really looking forward to seeing green infrastructure adopted on an even wider scale. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 51. Please leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. 
And don't forget to please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.